We don't wait until kids are 18 to start teaching them how to do their laundry. So why is it that we're waiting on money? The best way to make money is to have a long time horizon. So not only are you giving the kids more practice, but you're actually giving them a longer time horizon for them to not only get it, but to start investing. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Today, we're talking about the topic of teaching your children financial independence lessons, teaching them how to manage their money, teaching them about what money means. And our guests today are Doug Nordman and Carol Pittner. And they are a father-daughter team who wrote a book on this topic. Doug is a financially independent investor. He retired from the military, got out at 41, and has been financially independent since then, since 2001. That's incredible. He's had a great run. And Carol learned all those lessons along the way. Today, we talk about some of the lessons that she learned, some of the mistakes that she says uh, her parents made along the way, and some things that maybe she's going to do differently. She also has her own daughter. So we're talking about some of the lessons that she's going to be teaching her daughter as she grows up and that, that reforming of these lessons and the strategies to teach children that are born today as opposed to children that were born in the 80s and 90s. You know, we're not children anymore. We've grown up, but strategies and lessons have to change with the times and have to change with the technology. So we get into that as well. I think this is a huge topic that is not being talked about enough. And our guests today bring a unique perspective, which I'm very happy to be bringing and learning from as well. For those of you who are new to the show, I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor, a real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return. Love talking about these topics of financial independence and bringing a unique perspective with our fantastic guests. And uh, this is just a, a, a treasure trove of lessons. So without any further ado, here we go with the interview. Doug and Carol, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Taylor. I'm glad to be here. I really enjoyed your interview with uh, Robert Farrington, a, a college investor. Oh, thank you. And I'm really happy to be here as well. Thank you for having us. Thanks for being here. And we're going to do our best to, I'm going to do my best not to talk over <laughs> both of you is, is most likely thing here. But um, for those out there who don't know your background, don't know your specific relationship, can you tell us about yourselves and what you do? Yeah, I'm a retired U.S. Navy submariner. Uh, I and my wife reached financial independence in the late 90s on a high savings rate. Uh, I retired from active duty in 2002 at the age of 41. I've been retired from active duty for 18 years now. We've enjoyed the financial independence lifestyle for that whole time, and it's, it's good. Uh, we live on Oahu, and our daughter Carol was born and raised here. Back in the early 2000s, uh, we wrote a book, I wrote a book on military personal finance with some of Carol's help. And when that book was published, uh, we started talking with more people about reaching financial independence. And over the years, as we've continued to go to financial conferences and meetups with people, we've talked more and more about not just how you reach financial independence, but also the lifestyle and whether it's sustainable and how long this can go on. Uh, and you might've seen people think that this is just a fad. But, <laughs> uh, we're showing that you can do this for the rest of your life. And we've also started looking at how you raise your family for financial independence, Great. what your legacy looks like and everything beyond that. So like Dad mentioned, I'm his daughter. 
And uh, also, like Dad mentioned, I grew up on Oahu. So I was born and raised in Hawaii, did K through 12 there, and then decided that after high school, I wanted to go to college, earn a degree in civil engineering, and join the Navy. The Navy actually paid for college via ROTC. So I went to school in Houston, Texas. And then right after I finished college, I started my career as an officer and went right out to Rota, Spain. I did uh, most of my career, five years, on uh, surface warfare. So I did, you know, one ship out in Rota, Spain. I did another ship out in Norfolk, Virginia. After those two, I said, you know what? It's time for a break. I'm ready to do something that's not so uh, intense all the time. <laughs> so my, my husband is also active duty Navy. So we decided, you know, he's having a lot of fun with what he's doing with his career. But me, I, I could use a break. So I switched from active duty to reserves. And not two weeks after the switch, I found out that, we were pregnant. I, you know, we had our first daughter on the way. So it worked out perfectly. We're now sitting here in sunny California. He's going through his next duty station and I'm at home all day. I get to raise my daughter and I get to see her grow. That's great. That's great. And you just released a book on raising a financially savvy family. Can you, I mean, I really want to talk about that because I think it's a huge topic that folks aren't talking about. I mean, we, we kind of take for granted or maybe not even realize that we get probably most of, if not all of our money habits from our parents. And I think a lot of people are not really intentional about that. And you're releasing a guy to do that. And we've got both sides of the equation here, which I think is a huge rarity. So tell us, uh, tell us about the book and you know, let's, we'll get into some of these lessons. Well, this, this grew well, I think out the of story starts with dad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This, this grew up out of all the meetups that we were going to, and I would go to the, my, my eighth year, my ninth year meetups and give a talk about something about reaching financial independence. And there was always somebody in the audience, usually it was the first or second question who would say, yeah, yeah, I get it. We understand high savings, right? Fine. Thanks. But tell us how you're raising your daughter. How do you raise your kids to do this? And after three or four conferences, uh, we were visiting Carol and KJ one day at their apartment and we were waiting for the next part of our trip. We had another conference coming up. And so we're sitting around the dinner table talking about these conferences and uh, meetups. And I said, you know, I got, that, I got that question again about raising your kids for financial independence. I said, I, I really haven't gotten a good answer for that. And I don't really know exactly what to tell people. Uh, and Carol, what, what do you remember? What, what did we do to raise you for financial independence? And, and she just lit up. And I'll let There's you take it There's a lot of there. good stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and so what was funny was the exact same week that mom and dad were visiting, they actually were staying over at our apartment. I happened to be going through the mandatory transition class for the military. You're required to take this class whenever you leave active duty to make sure that you don't wind up being a homeless veteran out on the streets. And I'm in the middle of this class. I am bored out of my mind. I already have my <laughs> exit plan. I already have the finances to back it up. And Dad says, hey, what about this book? Well, I spent the rest of my time in that transition class just quietly tapping away at my laptop, putting together an outline and chapter headings and initial paragraphs. And I mean, when Dad said I let up on the subject, I probably had about a quarter of the book already written by the end of that week. <laughs> we, we sat around that dinner table that night. And uh, after about 10 minutes of stories, I realized I should be taking notes. And you know, my, my wife looked at me and said, you know, you got to write that book, this one too. And uh, after that, I, it was nice to have a co-author because we were able to put together an outline I, that came very fast. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I would be able to write a chapter and send it to Carol and she would fill in her parts and send back her writing and that collaboration going back and forth. Uh, not only was that fun, but uh, just being able to write a book with your daughter, with your, your progeny and seeing the next generation and, and, and not just the fun of that, but also finding out what they really felt and, 
what they really did, even though they told you maybe something a little different at the time. And, and that was, that was fun. It wasn't offensive. It wasn't soul crushing or, or upsetting. It was just interesting to see what the brilliant idea a parent has and how they try to implement it and how the, the child initially might resist or not even have any idea what's going on. And then later on they catch on and suddenly they, they grab that initiative and they run with it. And that's when they start to really understand what they're trying to do and, and just show how far they can take it on their own. Nice. Well, I mean, there's a, this is huge, right? We're talking about raising somebody to have some of these uh, ideals and pass them along and, and things like that. And I wanted to really, I mean, we're going to make it tough. I wanted to talk about some of the mistakes that were made along the way <laughs> and use that to illuminate mistakes that you think other folks make along these uh, when they, when they're trying to teach their kids about financial independence, and and it is it is all about the mistakes because you're trying to you, you'll start off with your kids most most families I, mean, I was in one of them at the time most families will start off with showing you how to save and invest, and that's the last thing a kid wants to learn about at any age before maybe being a teenager, maybe even being a young adult. You don't care about saving and investing. You care about using that money for stuff. And so our perspective is that you'll need to teach your kids how to manage their money and use those teachable moments. And the teachable moments come when they make mistakes with managing their money. Uh, one of the books that we reference was a book by David Owen, the first National Bank of Dad. And he uses the analogy of you giving your child a $20 bill and your kid taking out a cigarette lighter and lighting that bill on fire and then running around with it in the yard like a 4th of July sparkler over and over and over again because you're teaching your kids how to manage their money and they're going to mismanage it many times, but eventually they get tired of that life. They, they get something, they spend their money on a toy that looked really, really cool on the television commercial and the reality is different. They get a toy because all their friends have a toy and it's not exactly the toy they thought it was going to be. They spent all their money, they're not happy. And this is the time when the parent can step in and say, well, how does that make you feel? How did the toy look when you were seeing it on TV and your friends were playing with it? What would you do differently? And other opportunities occur when you give them that money. What are you gonna spend it on? What would you like to do with it? What kind of things could you buy? How much money would you need? And just talking through those issues helps them figure out what their money style is, figure out when they're gonna be able to save for some big toy when they're going to be able to figure out what brings value. I, I, these are very sophisticated concepts for a seven or an eight year old, but actually the earlier you start talking about this, the more primed they are to catch on and start doing something with it. And uh, Carol, you have an analogy in there where you talk about why we wait until kids or grownups before we really start teaching them how to manage their money. Well, you can talk about that. Right. Yeah. So one of the things that it took me a while to wrap my head around is that a lot of people wait until kids or adults to start talking about money yep. because a lot of legal boundaries exist that require you to be an adult before you can have money. For example, you can't have your own credit card because a lot of companies won't allow you to have your own credit card until you're 18. Same thing with having for a lot of companies, your own investment account. Same thing for having the, even just the legal power to inherit an estate. A lot of those barriers start at about age 18. And so it seems like a lot of people want to wait until kids turn 18 before they start teaching them about money. <laughs> Good luck. But that doesn't make sense in the sense that we don't wait until kids are 18 to teach them about dental hygiene. We don't wait until kids are 18 to start teaching them how to do their laundry or how to cook <laughs> or how to look both ways when crossing the street. So why is it that we're waiting on money? 
you know, this is one of those topics where no one really gets it perfect on the first, the second, the 500th, the 1000th try. So why not give kids more time? And on top of that, the best way to make money is to have a long time horizon. So not only are you giving the kids more practice, but you're actually giving them a longer time horizon for them to not only get it, but to start investing. You know, because mom and dad started teaching me about money when I was, you know, four, five, and six years old, by the time I was 14 and 15 and I could legally hold my first W 2 job, I was also ready to start investing in a Roth IRA. So I'm starting investments at age 14, where a lot of people are not only not finding out about money until they're in their 20s, but they have to pay down their debt before they can even start their investments and they may be in their 30s. So I already have a half lifetime ahead of them just because I started at a younger age. And we teach kids to, to manage their money and you know, they're, they're managing the money and making mistakes with it, but they're doing it at home with people they love and they trust and they know they're in a safe environment and they're making mistakes. I know a $20 bill seems like a big deal, but they're making mistakes with a relatively small amount of money at a young age instead of making mistakes with money at a really big amount at an older age. And that could be you know, student loans. That could be the first car. That could be the first house. Yes. That could be all of the different kinds of money tensions that come with having an extended family. You know, there's a, there's a lot of things that start tacking on extra zeros. So if you can start with just one zero, it's a big difference. So I wonder how do you think other, is it is it kind of too early to start incorporating things like tax management or, or tax strategy or, you know, really why you might want to invest in a, in a 401k, for example, I mean, bring down or defer some of those taxes, things like that, or is that maybe just too far down the line from teaching the concept of just value and, and savings more generally? We, we've, we've heard stories on both sides of that. You know, we've heard about the father who sat his uh, four-year-old daughter down with the newspaper and said, these are stocks. These are important. You should learn more about this. And, uh, and he wrote the foreword of the book. And it's J.L. Collins, the guy who wrote the book, The Simple Path to Wealth. And so it was a, a surprise to meet him and, and learn that story and realize how much that reflected on our experiences. And maybe uh, a 10-year-old isn't interested in taxes. I mean, you've heard that old joke about teach your kids about taxes by buying an ice cream yep. cone and then eating one third of it before you let them touch it. But the, the other way to teach your kid about taxes is when they get their first W-2 job and they've been told that they're getting paid some incredible sum of money, like $15 an hour. And then they find out that what they really get to keep is more like 11 12 or $13 an hour. And the question comes up, you know, where'd all the money go? And you say, well, let's sit down and we'll talk about taxes. That's the kind of teachable moment. Yeah, there's a great episode of Friends where uh, Rachel Green, one of the characters, she has her first real W-2 job as a waitress and she gets her first paycheck and she's touting it and she's happy and she opens the envelope and says, wait, who's FICA? And <laughs> suddenly people care. So I wouldn't tell somebody about tax planning or even about their Roth IRA until they were at the point where they needed to know that, where they actually had a chance to get, earn a paycheck and had a chance to open up a, a Roth IRA and then you can talk more about it. That's, that's the teachable moment. Maybe, maybe you're lucky, maybe you're raising you know, Warren Buffett and maybe at the age of eight or nine years old, maybe they ask about a Roth IRA. That, that's great. They're ready to learn if they're asking you those questions. But generally, you're going to wait for them to indicate their readiness to learn because that's what we do when we're adults. You know, you, we've always talked about financial literacy in high school, right? You've heard about all the bad things that are not taught in high school, not taught in middle school that end up biting people when they're in college or when they're young adults. 
And we should teach more of that in high school. And it sounds like a great plan and it probably should be available more widely to people that are interested in it. But I think back to when I was 16 years old and personal finance was not anywhere on the top 10 of my priorities at that age. And I don't think that I really was doing much cognitive thinking about those subjects at that age. I probably wasn't ready to learn any of that material if that had been forced on me in high school in the first place. So you wait for that teachable moment, that readiness to learn, that stage where they're really interested, where their incentives and their motives are aligned with yours. Interesting. So, you know, you went through this whole process between the two of you and, you know, Carol, you have your own child or children. I don't know exactly how many you're at right now, but I have one child and she's only six months old. So we're still working through the basic. <laughs> Very much. The you, basic. you talk about kids showing interest. She's just showing interest in solid foods right now. Hey, that's, so we're, we're, we're down there right now. <laughs> that's great. You've got a head start. She's raising the daughter we have warned her about. Oh, yes. Yes, I've, I've been apologizing immensely to my parents ever since for the lack of sleep and the stubbornness and uh, a lot of the traits that they've only talked about now that I finally get to witness for myself and my own daughter. Oh, those apologies never get old. Just keep coming. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So, I mean, there must be things, I mean, everybody, right, says, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z differently than my parents. and. <laughs> We probably don't need the full picture, but in this regard, considering that you went through this whole process of writing the book and you've been cognizant of these whole things, these things probably for most of your life anyway, what are some things that you're planning on doing differently and that, say, our generation can learn from our, say, parents' mistakes? Well, there's a couple of things. The first thing is that, and, and I mentioned this in the book, was that mom and dad were very good at giving me a book to read. And it was, hey, read this book called The Millionaire Next Door. And it was, hey, read this book called The Motley Fool. And read this book called Your Money or Your Life. And read this book and read this book. And each one of those books is 150 to 250 pages. And there were way more important things in my kid mind to do. You know, I was, I was not the kid to sit down with a chapter book all day. I was the kid that wanted to play video games and wanted to go into the mall and I wanted to go watch movies. Like I was, I was not going to sit there and read Your Money or Your Life when I was 13, I think was the first time dad mentioned that book. I'm sure it was at least maybe even younger. <laughs> right. And so that's the first lesson. What worked with mom and dad, that'll work, I think, with other parents, was they gave me articles. It was a five-minute read. It got the point across quickly. It was something that could be in the back of my mind or on my bookshelf, and I could easily grab back at it. And I would also say that in the more future present, you know, now, I would say that YouTube and other kinds of podcast videos and other kinds of episodes would help as well. You know, something that's on the shorter side, I would say 10 to 15 minutes or maybe even 30 minutes. I wouldn't have your kids sit down and watch a two-hour documentary quite yet. But something that's a little visual, something that's short and sweet and gets the point across. The other thing I would say is that it's a two-way street when you're talking about money with your kids. It's not only what the parents want to teach the kids, but it's also about the reception of the kids themselves. You know, we, we talked a lot just now about how sometimes kids aren't receptive. They're not ready to hear about things. And what'll work for one kid, you know, it could work for the older sibling, probably won't work for the younger sibling. And so it's hard for me to sit here and say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do this because I could try this and my daughter will not latch on it. And so I have to try something else and that'll work. And so I'll move on to the next lesson and it's going to be my own process of trial and error. And so I appreciate that I have the book and I have the whole inventory of tools to work with because I don't know which tool is going to be the most important yet. <laughs> that was, that was our generation just making stuff up. <laughs> right. I, I get that. I get that making stuff up thing now. I, I totally understand. 
Okay, that's interesting. So kind of adapting, especially the content to something that they might be more receptive to. You know, there's there's obviously a time frame in here when it's come up a couple of times when certain things become relevant. I mean, we've talked about you were about 13 when they handed you that book. Your daughter daughter's six months old, just kind of getting the hang of solid food or getting <laughs> there. So that's a little early. But, you know, in, in making a roadmap for these things and planning ahead, I mean, where do you think about, say, some of those middle years? We haven't really, I don't think, touched on, say, four to seven. What do you think about in the, kind of that range? A lot of it is a, t- a tech update, right? Right. Sure. Right. And so that's the thing with four through seven is that a lot of young uh, authors, you know, a lot of uh, young children, young book authors have gotten better talking about money and talking about more sensitive subjects. So there are a lot more uh, picture books that are available that talk about money. Growing up with mom and dad, the big book that was available at the time was called If You Made a Million. And it was a very whimsical book about if you made a million dollars, you could buy a plane ticket to the moon or you could get a thousand pieces of candy. Or And there's a lot of books that are like that out there that are just talking about how to approach spending money or how to approach saving money. And so I, I couldn't tell you a lot of topics. I couldn't tell you a lot of book titles off the top of my head, but you'd be surprised what you can find in the local library or even amongst the groups of the parents and everyone's bookshelves at home. Interesting. That is good to know. I mean, I suppose that's not what I... Would have, I wouldn't have thought there's all that much content out there for that purpose, but I don't know. I've, I've picked this stuff up vicariously myself as I grew up, you know, watching my parents pay for stuff. And that's what informed my habits, you know. Some of it is just getting your kids to make choices. You know, you hand them a dollar bill or two dollars and say, you can buy one special thing at the grocery store. Now, a three or four year old is going to be all over that because they've been to the grocery store with mom and dad. They've seen mom and dad do that stuff. And now they have the power. Uh, they have the money, they can choose their one special thing. And just being able to behave like a grown-up is the kind of thing that at that age, they really want to do grown-up stuff. And so being able to buy that thing, and it's their thing, and they got to make the choice, all of that is a way to motivate them to learn how to manage their money. And it just you just try more complicated things as they get older and bigger and better things. Uh, Carol, you had your checking account, if I remember right, uh, we could open your checking account at, at the age of nine because that's what the credit union said, right? I mean, right. you were ready. You probably would have been ready sooner, but that was the milestone birthday. Hey, you're nine years old. Here's your checking account. Right. And today you'd use probably a debit card or, or Venmo or another phone app. And you probably have a smartphone at a much younger age too, right? Right. And that's the thing was that I didn't get my smartphone until senior year of high school, the cusp of college. But I know that there's a lot of instances where middle schoolers are going to have iPhones and other kinds of smartphones. And there's a lot of tools that you can have on there. You can preload debit cards, you can have Apple Pay, and the list goes on and on. You know, one thing Dad mentioned about the grocery store, it's not only about one special thing, it's generally about the interactions that kids witness with money. They see mom and dad, you know, handing over money at the ticket booth at the movie theaters, and they want to be the ones to be able to physically hand the cash over to the, the box office. Or you could be in the grocery store and you're about to swipe your credit card, and instead you can just hand it to your kid and say, hey, do you want to do the swipe instead? And to them, that's power. Oh, that's so much fun because it's something that us adults are just like, yeah, yeah, more of our money. But the kids are like, oh, I get to do something I've never been able to do before. And that it's enticing. That makes them want to understand, hey, how can I get my own credit card? How can I have my own money to spend? Nice. I should point out that this is not this gigantic dumpster of money that we had sitting on the garage for Carol to tap into and use whenever (laughs) she needed to learn a financial lesson. Uh, This is is money that would have been spent anyway by us grownups. 
And so you start by giving your kids some of that money to manage, some of that money for them to control and, and make mistakes with, but they get a chance to do it at a much smaller amount. And so the money's going to be spent anyway. And if they learn how to do that earlier, then as you get later in life, if there are going to be money mistakes, they're going to be smaller. There's going to be fewer of them. So start small, make mistakes small, and build from there. And it's the same money that would be used to raise them anyway. There's, there's no special reserve fund for this other than just having the interest in teaching them how to manage their money. Nice. So, I mean, the experience of being a, a child, the kid of a, somebody who's financially independent is fairly unique, right? And I'm sure there were, I mean, we talked a bit about the things that, that you learned along the way, Carol, as, as you were a kid. And I, I'm really wondering if there are any, you know, looking back, any mistakes that you made, any important lessons that you didn't pick up on that shoot, maybe they were taught and it just, it didn't sink in. I mean, that's the way I learn a lot of times is by not learning and then learning the hard way. So is there anything that comes to mind that you wish you'd maybe picked up or been taught that was missed out on by the, the financially independent retired early parentage? Not so much that I missed out on because when I look back on what I learned as a, as a kid, when it came to money, I was so far ahead of my peers. I was so well set up for the future. It was, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're talking about the difference between having 92% proficiency and 98% proficiency. You know, it was, it was one of those things where at that point, you're just counting the little details that really don't need to be counted. But when it came to um, things that I didn't quite pick up right away or things that I missed the bus on the first couple of times, I would say that trading cards was one of my biggest mistakes as a kid. And then I would also say that, and we talk about this in the book, um, I had to be bailed out of my credit card once because I wasn't paying attention to what I spent the money on. The, the trading cards are pretty straightforward. I was like every kid when Pokemon first came out in the mid-90s, and I just had to have those playing cards. I never actually played the game. I just collected the cards. Yep. But I didn't, <laughs> yeah. And, and I didn't, you know, I, I, I knew how you were supposed to play the game because that's how they showed it on TV, but I never actually played the game. And then when it came to the trading cards, I knew that I had to have the valuable cards, but I didn't really know how to trade the cards to get more money out of it. I, I didn't know how to make it profitable. And I thought I learned my lesson with Pokemon and then Yu-Gi-Oh came and I made the same (laughs) set of mistakes all over again. I never actually played Yu-Gi-Oh, but I watched a TV show and I got to have the cards and I got to have the expensive cards, you know, the ones that are actually valuable, but I never figured out how to make it profitable. And especially in my neighborhood, when it came to Yu-Gi-Oh cards, that actually became a, a neighborhood scandal. Apparently there was a lot of inflated prices and people that were underselling and overselling each other. And it finally erupted one day when one kid snuck into another kid's house and stole his deck of Yu-Gi-Oh cards right out of his room. And, you know, the whole street just erupted. That's when all the parents found out how much money was being spent on cards. They found out who was cheating who out of what money and how much. And, oh my God, I can't believe you did that. And, you know, that was a whole that was a whole month of teachable moments, wasn't it? Oh yes. There there's a lot of people that were grounded. There's a lot of people that had to give cards back. There's a lot of apologizing back. It was it was a whole big mess. But it, it took that kind of, you know, seismic event for me and all those kids in the street to learn that lesson. And then when it came to overspending my credit card, I'm a senior in high school. I'm a semester away from going off to college. I just wasn't paying close enough attention to my card. And I can't remember if it was $150 or $250, but that that's how bad it was. I didn't even remember what I spent the money on. I didn't remember how it happened. I just remember that I'm sitting there looking at my register and I realized, oh, I overspent money. I don't have enough money. I need... I. 
I need a loan. What, what am I supposed to do? And, and I did what I, what I was supposed to do, which is I went to mom and dad and said, <laughs> I overspent my money and I know it's a mistake and I need to be able to get some more money to pay off this credit card bill in time because it's due in a, a two, three weeks. I forgot exactly what it was. And because I admitted it to mom and dad up front, they were, they were much more lenient. I realized at a 2020 hindsight, you know, we, we came up with this plan of, <laughs> I was working for uh, jobs around the house, little handyman jobs, like, you know, lawn mowing and yard work and painting things and fixing things. And that was about a 10 to $15 an hour rate. And so I just did a bunch of chores up front, a bunch of jobs up front to try to pay off that debt as soon as possible. But that was a rough week. I outsourced most of my life during that two weeks. It was wonderful. <laughs> it was great. Right? But it was also such a miserable time because I don't even remember what I spent the money on. And then I just lost all this extra free time because I'm trying to pay back something that I don't even remember enjoying in the first place. And so that that was also a very seismic event. And it was a good thing for me to learn right before I went off to college, right before I was launched from the nest and doing my own thing in a completely different state. Wow. That is quite the story. And, you know, we haven't really dug into how you ended up financing college, but I think but you know, before we get to that, that's obviously a huge problem for our generation. I mean, we, we know a lot of people who have gotten very deep into debt and for a wide variety of reasons, but I believe that I, I actually have found by talking to many of them that many of them didn't really know what they were getting into when they're taking out oh, all yeah. these loans. Oh and yeah, lifestyle money. Yeah, absolutely. And it's more of a, I mean, this is kind of again where we get into some more of these advanced concepts. Although from from the kind of the inside looking out, you know, we know how interest works now, but and it seems simple. But how do how can people really teach that lesson and teach the concept of a hundred thousand dollars in student debt that you can't get rid of by <laughs> any other way than paying it off? Yeah. Ahead of time. I mean, how, how do you break into that? I we, we spent some time managing expectations. Is that where you're going? Yeah, I was going to say, you have to start with that young conversation. I don't mean you have to have them on day one in kindergarten saying, by the way, you're going to college, and you're paying for it yourself. I mean, that's just, <laughs> that's not going to work. But I think one thing that has to be made clear early on is that if there is an expectation for the kids to be taking care of themselves at some point, that that's stated clearly from the get-go. Hey, one day you're going to be 18 years old. You're going to be out of the house. Whether or not you're expected to go to college, you're going to be expected to pay 50%, 75%, 100% of your own college time. So you should start working now on getting good grades and, and on taking care of your academics so that when the time does come, you're able to get scholarships or you're able to find some other way to pay for college and keep your options open. I think what was what was hard for a lot of my peers in high school was that there wasn't that set of expectations. Everybody was told in school, you're going to go to college. You've got to get good grades so you can go to college. But there wasn't really that talk on the other side of how college was going to be taken care of. Yep. I remember there was one case where one of my peers came to school really frustrated one morning. And I asked her what's going on. She said, you won't believe my parents did. They're paying for my older brother to go to college. They're paying for my older sister to go to college. And now they're starting a renovation on the house. And they told me they can't pay for me to go to college. I'm just like, oh, <laughs> wow. Wow. But but that was setting expectations. It was she realized that there's a renovation going on in the house. And it wasn't until she started asking questions that she found out that her college was not going to be paid for. And when you're a sophomore in high school finding that out, that's a lot of stress oh because all of a sudden you're halfway through your high school career. You got to start college applications soon. And now you have this whole other world of trying to figure out how you're going to make money 
and you might not have the best grade point average for that. So now you're on that added pressure to get even better grades, but you're looking at all your peers and wondering how you're going to get better grades than all of them. And so rather than putting all of that stress on the kids right at high school, right as you're trying to transition to the real world, right as you're trying to leave the nest, if you set those expectations earlier on in time, that gives them a little more time to process and put together a plan and actually come up with a process and then execute the process to getting to college. But we, we started out at a much simpler level in first and second and third grade as Carol was going and talking about teachers and learning about some teachers being better than other teachers. We realized that there were times when she was very critical of the way she thought a teacher should be running the class. This is an eight-year-old saying exactly what's wrong with the school's educational system. And we came up with a rule out of desperation. But the rule we came up with was you couldn't complain about your teacher at school unless you had an A in that class. <laughs> and, and I wouldn't have expected, it wouldn't have worked on me, but at, yeah, I didn't encounter that too often, but it worked like a charm at that young age. So by the time she was in middle school, we talked about how we'd been saving money and investing money in a college fund and that she'd have a college fund available and it would pay for a couple of years of school. Maybe, maybe it would pay for more. And you start talking as they become aware of what college expenses look like, you start talking about, you know, the community college versus Harvard. And then you talk about where they are in that scale. And as we talked through those conversations, we mentioned too, that this college fund is going to be something that she's going to be managing while she's going to college. And that we're going to give her more and more of the college fund to manage. And that the better job she did of being a good steward of the college fund, then the more profit sharing there would be after college. And so she appreciated, I'd say when we started having this conversation, Carol, you were in seventh, eighth, ninth grade. Oh yeah. It, it was right in the middle school years. I, it was the same time I that I started getting uh, academic pressure because it was yeah. things like you should take our elective in this particular school. That's, because that's, Yeah. That's what it was, it, was the teachers were piling on the pressure. You should do all these extracurricular things to make them look good on your college application. Seventh graders, seventh yeah. graders. Yeah. <laughs> well, won't this look great? And, and so we talked about how she would have a college fund and she wouldn't necessarily need to do all those things, but she should consider the advanced math track if she was going to be interested in going to college to study engineering. And that takes a little bit of the pressure off. Now they've kind of got a rule book to work with. But then you say, and if you do a good job of managing your college fund and we'll help you out and we'll make sure you understand the issues, then there will be profit sharing when you graduate. And that I think gave her a much better sense of what she could do. And we talk about in the book how, you know, maybe you're going to go to college, but maybe you're just going to want to go to a trade school. Uh, you know, we can all make jokes about plumbers, but nobody's outsourcing plumbers to the countries of India or Africa. And so maybe plumbing is a very good occupation. Maybe electrician is a very good, op a very good uh, occupation. You know, maybe you'll go back to college later. Maybe uh, you'll join the military because you just don't know what else you want to do with your life. And that will certainly help you refine what you want to do when you get out of the military. But the whole point is that you're going to be given a certain amount of money to manage toward that goal. And ideally, your parents have been setting aside that money since you were in diapers to let that money grow and compound to where there is a certain amount of money for the education fund. And, and that's a touchy subject because every parent has an idea of how much they're willing to pay for their kids in college. Uh, and sometimes that's four years at Harvard for their single child, or sometimes that's two years at the community college for their eight kids uh, and everything in between. It's based on your experiences when you were growing up, when your parents had the conversation with you about college and that's going to color how you feel about for the next generation. I'd, I'd, I'd be fascinated in about 15 years to see what kind of conversations you're having with our granddaughter about her expectations for college. 
and, and it's going to be fun just to watch the whole thing go on. I mean, it's not like I get a vote, not like anybody needs to ask my opinion. It's just interesting to watch how one generation's values on that particular subject get handed down to the next one. So I, I felt that if we could align her financial incentives with what we wanted the college fund to be used for, that that would help it work out better. And, and by golly, it sure did, right? Mm-hmm. Every time you started talking about getting a new laptop or a new gizmo or a new piece of hardware or something. Or spring break somewhere, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, spring break, yeah. Yeah, and, and that was the other thing was that it made me look at all of my college options. It was you could go to the University of Hawaii and you could probably get a full ride, but would you be happy just being in the state of Hawaii? Or in my case, I actually went to the mainland. I went to Houston because I found this thing called Navy ROTC. You know, there's discussions about service academies and whether or not I wanted to do the Naval Academy like mom and dad, even though they didn't want me to. But hey, you know, I might want to do that myself. <laughs> and then that also opened up the discussion into ROTC. It opened up the discussion into a lot of what they call Uh, officer candidate programs where you don't have all four years of college paid for by the military. You may only have one or two years, but after that, you have a direct slot into their training pipeline and into the military after that. And so by, by having the discussion early about what the expectations were for college and how to pay for it, it was also an opportunity to dream, you know, what do you really want to do with your college career? What do you really want to do in your post-collegiate life? And how do you want to get there? And then I could open that up. I could look at more options than I probably would have imagined if it was, oh, mom and dad are just going to pay for it. Yeah. Wow. Wow. There's so much into this and we've touched on a lot of important topics right now. We're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Doug and Carol, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show or guests. Are you ready? All right. Ready. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Take it in whatever order you want, Doug or Carol, whoever's going first. Dad, you first. Okay, I'll, I'll take it first. My best education has been marrying my spouse, my best investment. And that's carried on into raising our daughter. And, and that sounds kind of sappy, but uh, the whole point of it was that once, uh, once I met the woman I wanted to marry, I had to become a little more responsible and it included financially responsible. And once we decided to start a family and actually it actually happened, there is that holy cow moment when you come home from the hospital with your baby and you say, you know, I got to start acting like a grown up, and I got to take care of this human life and make sure it works out. And those are difficult things to do. Uh, it's a long sustained effort over a long period of time, but those were the best investments I think that paid off for me for my life. I would like to tell you the story of how I bought Apple stock in 2001 at $10 a share and I still own those shares, but that didn't happen. So. <laughs> And uh, not to be cliche or to be the broken record, but also for me, it was having that good investment in my spouse and having that good investment in our marriage. You know, dad mentioned about, you know, having, you know, coming to the same level as your spouse. And I say it the same way as in it's a partnership. It's about both of you working together in tandem on the same page to make both of your lives better. And it's not just the two of you, like dad said, it also is the kids that are coming or the relatives that may have to be dependent on you for whatever the situation is. When I met my future son-in-law, I was pretty sure he was marrying up. And now that I've gotten to know him better, maybe that's not quite the case. Maybe, maybe you married up, Carol. I, I married up. I'm not going to lie. I definitely <laughs> married up. That's great. I, I get that answer very frequently and it, it, from a you lot too. of successful okay. people. It's, I'm not holding that against you. I get it from a lot of successful people for very similar reasons. So I think the proof is in the pudding. We had the best investment. Now we go to the worst investment. What is the worst mm investment you ever made. Let's go with Carol first. Okay. So this one, it's it's not necessarily a worse investment as much as it's the 
biggest struggle I have, and that's trying to figure out what kind of insurance I need. I mean, obviously you need health insurance, you need renter's insurance, you need car insurance, you might even need home insurance. Like there's there's some basic staples that you are either required by law or it's a very good idea to have. But then it's a question of how much auto insurance do I need? How much renter's insurance do I really need? How much life insurance and health insurance do I really need? And that answer is so fluid and it changes so often. And it's and I find it a beast to handle. I, I can't say whether I'm doing it right or wrong because it's always changing. And what worked yesterday may not work tomorrow. Nice. Somebody should write a book. If only there's a yeah. place you could go. Yeah. All right, Doug, what's your worst investment? My, my worst investment is that I'm an angel investor. I've uh, been associated with Hawaii Angels since uh, late 2007, and I'm no longer active there. I've been making angel investments for 10 years, and now I'm just watching those play out. But at $25,000 minimum investment at a time in each of seven different companies that barely made it through three or four years of operation, that's a very educational investment when your $25,000 investment goes to zero in a relatively quick amount of time. So it's been very educational and you learn a lot of skills about assessing a company's prospects, their business model, all the other things that go into picking stocks or investing. And it's been a very expensive uh, MBA program, but it's uh, been one of the best ones I've ever had uh, from the school of experience. Interesting. So uh, as a, say, a general comment on angel investing, it sounds like you've kind of stepped back from it. Would you say recommend it or not recommend it. It's not a specific recommendation, but stay away or go for it. No, but I would, I would recommend it. Uh, and really, and, oh, absolutely. Uh, well, I've learned a lesson here. I would recommend it because you're learning to become a better investor. Yes. Every founder, every CEO of a startup is very evangelical, very persuasive, and it makes it very easy to get in that reality distortion field and decide that they're going to be the next Google. And so you learn something right there about your biases and, and how your emotions are subject to and interfere with your, your logic and your math. Uh, you also have to look at a, a startup and figure out, do they have the right product? Do they have the right model? Do they have the right financing? Is this going to work? Uh, many times all those come together and then this meteor strike changes their entire industry and, and puts them out of business. And so you learn about random events like that, which can affect a startup through no fault of its own. And and that's where pivots come from. And we all talk about all the multiple pivots that a company like Facebook or Tesla has had to make to succeed. And, and the only reason we talk about it is because those pivots succeeded. And then the other things you learn about angel investing are just the basics of the, the financial part, but you also learn to know about diversification. It's ironic that when you're picking individual startups, that you start to appreciate diversification but you really do understand what startups are going to do well or what startups are going to get driven out of business. That's, that's fairly straightforward and distinguished with a little experience. But you also realize that you really need to invest in a minimum of 10 startups. I would say a better number is 20. And then you need to keep money on the side for the subsequent rounds because a startup that's succeeding needs more of your money. And you should do that because that means that they're going to eventually pay off more if they're succeeding. It's not, give me more money, I'm going out of business. It's, hey, this is working and it's growing and we're doing great. And now we're ready to raise the next million dollars to grow even faster. And so you learn about these, these issues as an angel investor that apply to investing in the stock market, investing in asset allocation and, and all these things. I've also started looking at philanthropy and there are ways that you help people by giving them a hand up. You want to 
make sure that the food bank in your community is sustainable. You want to have homeless shelters. You want to help people at a point when they need it. And it's interesting. We talk about angel philanthropy in the same vein where you give a founder or a co-founder a couple of investments and maybe they raise $250,000 from 10 investors. And they take that money and they create jobs, they create products, they create life-saving equipment. My best investments are in a couple of medical tech companies, which have fundamentally changed the industry for the better. And they will continue to do that. And so you're giving them money and, and you would like to have some of that back someday. But in the meantime, maybe that product that they've developed is being used to save a bunch of lives and maybe even your life one day. Uh, maybe that product is going to go on and make it a lot easier for everybody's standard of living to be higher. And, and so you don't have to worry as much about the survivability of social security or Medicaid. And th these are things that you wouldn't think of investing in a company as charity, but these are founders that are incredibly motivated. And, and the people that end up in homeless shelters and food kitchens are there sometimes because it's no fault of their own. They need a hand up. And the founders are taking that with maybe 10 times as much motivation and initiative and persistence. So it's been a, a tremendous number of valuable lessons from angel investing. And I'm holding on to the existing companies, the ones that have survived the 10-year experience. And if they need more money and it makes sense to invest, then I'm putting additional money into the next round. However, the ones that, that flamed out, the ones that failed early on, those were the ones that developed the, the most compelling lessons because you didn't see it coming or you realize in retrospect you were suffering from hubris or you got rushed or somebody had an impact on you that uh, was leading you in the wrong direction. You didn't appreciate it until it was too late. Wow. But that's where I've lost the most money, but that's where I've probably learned the most about investing is from angel investing. So if someone is adequately capitalized, and when I say that, I mean, if you have uh, to an angel investor somewhere between 250,000 and $500,000, then angel investing is a worthwhile experience. If you don't have that much money, then crowdfunding through another resource is certainly on, on the radar, something like Kickstarter or other crowdfunding sources. Syndicating with other investors, for example, in real estate, you, you can syndicate with a number of other people. Those are all valuable ways to learn and to take control of your own project and use your own motivation and initiative and innovation and figure out how you're going to make your own money, reach your own financial independence. I, I don't see my family benefiting from my investment in the next medical company that becomes Johnson Johnson. Sorry, Carol, it's not going to happen. Yeah, I didn't think it was. <laughs> I'm not banking on it. No worries. But, 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 you know, I've learned a lot about angel investing at a relatively young age and I won't be tempted about it when I'm, you know, 82 years old. Or, or when you're uh, going a little bit. That's right. When my cognition has gone past its peak and it's down the other side of the hill. Yes. Wow. Well, turning a negative into a positive, that's great. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson that you've learned in business and investing? We went with Carol first last time. Let's go with Doug first this time. With business, it's all about cash flow. If you don't have cash flow from the start, it doesn't matter how good you are at funding. It doesn't matter how good you are at innovation or organization or your business plan. If people aren't throwing money at you from the very start through pre-orders, or through funding it on their own because you're solving their problem and they're going to pay you for the first version of it, doesn't matter. Cash flow. If you can't get cash flow right off the top, then you're probably in the wrong business and you need to pivot and do something else. And in, in life, the, the most important investment has been for financial independence has been high savings rate. 
high savings rate gives you the ability to figure out what's important to you, what you value and where you're going to spend your money. And if you're going to spend your money on those things, whether you're willing to work the extra months or even years to afford to buy that thing and to carry it and to have it for its entire life cycle. And that high savings rate also overcomes a lot of other mistakes. You can have things happen. For example, uh, you spend too much on a car or you spent too much in a house and you can probably recover from that with a high savings rate. And if you're not able to achieve that high savings rate, then that's an indication that there are much bigger problems going on. And when I say high savings rate, I don't mean just cutting your expenses to the bone. I also mean raising your income. You know, if you feel your high savings rate is only going to come from earning more money, then you're going to be motivated to find a way to change your career, change your occupation, and eventually earn more money. And you can only cut the expenses so far when you cross that line from being frugal to being deprived. So the high savings rate is the metaphor for all the good things that come out of financial independence. Nice. Carol? For me, I would say the biggest thing is just to get started. And a lot of people will sit on their hands or they'll sit in their chair and they're postulating and they're trying to predict what would happen if they did this or they did that. And they would come up with ideas, but they wouldn't really act on it. And I'm only 27. I mean, I know I'm supposed to be young compared to most people, but I'm already looking at my past and I'm thinking it's been six years since I graduated college. It's been 10 years since I graduated high school. I mean, life has gone by already. Mm -hmm. And I imagine to myself, what could I have done in those 10 years? What could I have done in those six years? You know, if you're the kind of person that had an idea, well, what would have happened if in one year you just went from this just being an idea to at least getting a pop-up business started? Yes. You know, what would have, what would have happened if in the last in the last six months you had just started with this idea and then done some more research into patent law or into figuring out how to make a prototype? And so I would really encourage people to stop sitting there and thinking about the what ifs and actually go and make the what ifs, you know, try to find the answers for those what ifs, you know, what if I did this? Oh, that's failed. At least now you know it failed. You know, what if I did this? And it turns into something you completely didn't expect. Well, now you know that that was a possibility. Nice. I love all of these answers we've gotten. Thanks for joining us today and teaching all these lessons. If folks want to get in touch with you, if they want to get a copy of the book, where can they find you? Uh, the book's for sale on Amazon now. Uh, it's actually launched on 8 September, but pre-sales are going on now. Uh, the full title of the book is Raising Your Money Savvy Family for Next Generation Financial Independence. And uh, I'm online. You can search for me as Doug Nordman or the website I started is The Military Guide. Uh, those all rank pretty high on, on Google right now on search engines. So you'll have no trouble finding that. Nice. As for me, I'm also on Facebook. You can find me under my name, Carol Pittner. And I run around a lot of the financial groups, Choose Five, Bigger Pockets Money, you know, the Afford Anything, a lot of different groups. I'm all over those. So you can find me there. Um, Dad already mentioned the book title. What I'm also working on is a website called Childfire you know, wildfire, but with children. Nice. And that's that website is still under construction. So it's not quite ready for prime time, but it's certainly something you can visit and sort of poke around. And of course, we have links for the book on that site as well. Great. Well, I think it's a, it's a topic that needs covered and you're bringing a unique perspective as the father-daughter duo on this topic. So I love that. Very unique and a lot of actionable lessons and experiences in there. So thank you for bringing those to us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It's very much appreciated. If you know anyone else who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week. And we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.